I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? To all the school kids going on strike for climate change, you're the first generation who've required air conditioning in every classroom. You want TV in every room, and your classes are all computerized. You spend all day and night on electronic devices. More than ever, you don't walk or ride bikes to school, but you arrive in caravans of private cars that choke suburban roads and worsen rush hour traffic. You're the biggest consumers of manufactured goods ever and update perfectly good, expensive luxury items to stay trendy. Your entertainment comes from electric devices. Furthermore, the people driving your protests are the same people who insist on actually inflating the population growth through immigration, which increases the need for energy, manufacturing and transport. The more people we have, the more forest and bushland we clear the more of the environment that's destroyed. How about this? Tell your teachers to switch off the aircon, walk or ride to school, switch off your devices and read a book, make a sandwich instead of buying manufactured fast food. No, none of this will happen because, the piece says, you're selfish, badly educated, virtue-signalling little turds inspired by the adults around you who crave a feeling of having a noble cause while they indulge themselves in Western luxury and unprecedented quality of life. Wake up, grow up, and shut up. Dang! I got something to add to that. You want to have better kids? Get them in the woods. Get them on the rivers, put them in the swamps, put them in a tree stand, let them start digging in the dirt, catching some stuff, Show them what it means to actually skin something. What goes into when you're eating something? You want to have better kids that aren't just virtue signaling little turds, as this guy just said? <laughs> That's one way to do it. I, I've, I've got a nephew that lives in Arkansas. He's 12. Uh, originally, they come from California. I mean, not California, Colorado. Man, I didn't mean to cuss them that bad. And uh, they come from a place that's uh, very fit, uh, lots of sunshine, lots of snow in the winter. They do a lot of hiking. It's, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, because there are people that do a lot of hunting, fishing, and trapping in Colorado. But the majority of the wilderness, or the nature per se, that all the hipsters enjoy comes from a distance. You go down the ski slopes, you go on long hikes, everybody hikes. Oh good God, everybody in Colorado hikes. You know, if they've been in the military, they might realize that uh, maybe there's other things to do besides just walk long distances, but that's neither here nor there. But it's from a distance. It's like you watch nature through 
a screen, even though if you're out in it, because you don't get off the trail because that's, that's a big no-no. You don't pick up anything because you're disturbing nature. You don't get, I mean, it, it's, it's like going through a park, you know, like a virtual park, even though it's real. Well, my nephew and his family, see, she would be my niece, moved to Arkansas, and I'm not going to say where, but you want to talk about a different culture. In Arkansas, you don't view nature from entertainment from a distance or just through walking around. You're in it. People there are diehard fishermen and trappers and hunters and mushroom uh, seekers and ginseng diggers and squirrel hunters and rabbit hunters. They canoe, they kayak, yes, they hike, but it's very different because they're in it. When they come home, they're a little dirtier, not just from sweat by staying on a trail somewhere. Well, I've, I've got a 12 year old, I think he's called a nephew, be my, my sister's niece's son. So whatever that is. Anyway, it's not like um, firearms were a big part of the family. Well, my brother-in-law from Colorado is an elk hunter. Not, and he likes to shoot, but it's, it's not like when I talk about shooting, you know, it's tactical and uh, lots of rounds and, you know, I'll, I'll, I try to keep up with skills and, and stuff like that. He shoots to hunt, but it's not like they carry uh, self-defense weapons around or or it's like in my house, I can grab something that goes bang and you know, within probably 15 feet anywhere I'm at in my house. So it's, it's different. Well, the boy wanted to get a BB gun. And see, brother-in-law came from Colorado, spent two days with him out in the woods. They have a little bit of land backed up to a bunch of woods. There's a creek. Now the kids, instead of looking at creeks as they walk past them, they're in the creeks, they're flipping rocks, they're looking for snakes, they're catching crawfish, they're catching minnows. I mean, the, the way that most people in my generation grew up when you went outside and played. Well, he taught him two days of safety for a BB gun. And I don't know what kind of BB gun, I don't know if it's like a, a you know, just like a regular daisy or it's one of these pump up things, it's like a 22. I really don't know. But for some reason, with him being in the situation he's at in Arkansas, he wanted to go hunting. So of course you had to wait till hunting season and he wanted to go squirrel hunting with a BB gun. Well, he got his, he got a squirrel. Uh, he comes home, his dad, which is not an outdoorsman, not in the way that me and you think of outdoorsmen, but you know, uh, does a lot of hiking, does long distance running, does races, stuff like that. So he's outside, but it's not like he, he's digging blood out from under his fingernails once or twice a week. Not that type of outdoorsman. Well, they get the squirrel. They're trying to figure out how to skin it. The kid's having a big old time. The kid wants to now tan it, 
Think about the lessons in this, because there was a lesson. They left it out in the salt on the back porch and something came by and barred it. So they didn't get the pelt, but the mom, being an, the awesome mom that she is, she made a whole dinner based off of one squirrel, which was basically a bunch of vegetable soup with a little bit of meat in it. But it was a big deal to the kid because in his mind, he went out, he produced food, and he fed the family with what he hunted. Now that little girl that you heard at the, the beginning of that clip, that's how dare you, a little snotty, I'm not gonna say it, because it's not her fault, it's her parents' fault that they raised something like that. Look at the different view of something like this. Now, and I get in England where that old girl's from, they're not gonna go out and go squirrel hunting. <laughs> no. Oh, that's just barbaric. But here, my nephew got to go out with a BB gun. It took him several days, because if I have a feeling it's just a regular standard BB gun that probably loses power after 15 feet. And uh, anyway, he got his squirrel. So they had to figure out how to skin it and gut it. They were gonna tan it. They had a big meal preparation. And the funny part of the story is because the family's not really grown up in that, apparently it took longer to get the hair off the meat before the mom could actually cook it than any other part of this process. So the next time that he gets a squirrel, I hope I can FaceTime him with his mom or dad and we're gonna teach that boy how to pull down and take the socks off of the squirrel so they don't have to worry about that. Or if he gets to come up here and it's during squirrel season, uh, we, we will have a feast of squirrel. The difference in the mentality of a kid that's actually integrated into being in nature. Not that it's a far off concept, but it's right there. Anyway, we've been going back to the basics, guys. I talked about water trapping. Um, uh, I had a guy uh, yesterday actually brought me some beaver meat. Lives down the road. And he was saying how he appreciated me talking about the safety because he's doing a lot of kayak. Uh, uh, I think it's a kayak. I mean, a canoe. And he's doing beaver work. And it's some things maybe he hadn't thought about. Because he has dumped the canoe before. He was telling me this story. And I went over this generics of water trapping. Not so much any techniques. But so what I want to do today is talk about rats. And I don't care if you are my age or older and you're the best coyote trapper in the country. And you're, you're dealing with all the crazy weather, depending on where you're at. And you've got, you know, like, because that's kind of considered the upper the food chain of trapping short of wolves and probably mountain lions. But rats, to go rat trapping 
if you've never done it and make a conscious effort to actually go do it as an adult, you will be just like that 12 year old with his BB gun in Arkansas, getting his first squirrel and trying to figure out how you get to the meat. Muskrat trapping is fun. Now, like anything else that, that humans can get a hold of, we can make it not fun. We can try to get so into the weeds on every bit of detail that we stress ourselves out. We can push ourselves to the point where we're miserable, like if muskrat prices are really high. But just the act of being in a boat or a canoe or being on a pond and walking around the edges and finding the runs and seeing some droppings on some logs, I'm telling you guys, every human being needs to go rat trapping at least once a year. Even if it's for four days. It like resets the human being to realize all this crazy stuff is maybe not all that important. Now before getting the show, since and I wasn't planning on talking about this, I watched a show last night on Netflix. It's called Don't Look Up. I think it's fairly new. I think it's a Netflix original. It's got uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's got the girl from The Hunger Games. And she kind of looks more like the girl with the, the dragon tattoo, the way they got her dressed up. You need to watch it. Then you need to go muskrat trapping. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but the movie guys was so creative and in so insightful to how we take things seriously that probably are just not that important. So basically you've got two scientists that find a comet that's going to hit earth. It's as big as a mountain. So it's going to destroy the whole earth, whether it does or not, you got to watch the movie. So they start talking to people about what can we do and they get around politicians, the president, chief of staff, and they realize they're buffoons. They realize that the military generals are buffoons, that the press are nothing but buffoons, fake, they don't care about anything, they're not real, what they talk about's not real. And as the movie goes on, the, the, the big premise of this is you've got two sides. You know, this is like five or six days before the meteor hits the earth. And there's this two big plans to stop it. You'll have to watch the movie to see how that goes. But you've got the president that's working with crazy scientist and it reminded me a lot of Bill Gates mixed with uh, the neighborhood guy, the way that he talks, where he just thinks he's smarter than everybody else and everybody else has got to bend to his will, kind of like a Bill Gates type person. And he sees profit in the meteor, so they're going to try to do some stuff to make money off of it, which is going to kill a bunch of people, but Politicians don't care, and the rich don't care, and the scientists don't care. 
So it's, it's, you know, just think a little bit about the jab and you can kind of see some correlations going on. The, the, the way that they get you to think about what, what our world is today is brilliant. But the politicians that want to make a profit out of this along with the, the billionaires, they don't want people to look up because they're trying to convince them that it's not really there, I guess. And then you've got the people that knows it's there because they can look through a telescope and see this thing coming. And you got one side going, don't look up. And you got the other side going, look up. But the, the people that are on the don't look up side, they're like, it's just like vaxxed and unvaxxed. I mean, it's got, you got, you put blinders on, you don't use any common sense. You just repeat the same crap that you hear from the baffoons on the news and the politicians and the crazy scientists. And then all of a sudden they're at this big rally and one of the guys looks up in the crowd and he can see the comet. So it didn't matter what the politicians, he's looking at the comet. They lied to me. But up until that point, he would have fought and made fun of and they brilliantly use social media to show you how crazy all that is. Because in his mind, his side was right no matter what. It's called Don't Look Up. You should watch it with your kids and have a conversation. Then go muskrat trapping. Because when you're in the water and you're looking for sign, and it's not like you need expensive equipment to go catch rats. And it's not like, um, you know, you've got to like have a marathon day to go catch. If you've got a decent number of rats, go catch a decent number of rats. I think it just resets the human being to things that are more real. Before we get in the show, I want to thank our sponsors. We have F&T Fur Harvesters, everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. We have Funky Trap Tags and Supplies, which is out of Iowa, also sponsor of Man Strong Podcast. We have Oki Cable and Trap. And we have Dunlap Lures. These guys flip the bill on the server cost to do this. They're also good people. I wouldn't deal with them if they weren't. They're honest people. I wouldn't deal with them if they weren't. They treat their customers the way that you want to be treated as a customer, or I wouldn't deal with them. They support something that you get for free. Now see, to be a, 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 a good person, you support things that you enjoy. You should, even if it is free. I do it all the time. I just bought t-shirts from a, a company called Hostel because I listened to a bodybuilding podcast. I don't need those shirts. I got more t-shirts than I can do. But that is a way for me to support what he does for his free podcast. That's, that's just the right thing to do. So if you like listening to Trapping Radio, Man Strong Podcast, 
at least give them a shot. And if you do, you're going to find out how well that you're taken care of that you're probably going to stay with them for a long time. I want to I want to go through the history of my muskrat trapping guys. I want to be super clear, crystal clear. I am not a muskrat master. I am what you would probably call an extremely creative and hardworking, probably less than average muskrat trapper. How's that to sell some information? But it's true. I've never went out and caught a thousand or two thousand rats. I never have. The most I've ever caught in two weeks was uh, I think 460 or something. It was a little over, it, was, it wasn't five, I know that. And I about killed myself in those two weeks to get those. I'm talking all day, every day. I didn't set a coon trap. I might have set a few beaver traps just because they were so obvious. I totally focused all of my energy on muskrats. Most of my muskrat type stuff is just intermediate, hit because hit, I see something or I see some sign and the muskrat price is not like 50 cents. So I'll, I will, because I'm telling you, they're fun. There's just something so childlike about muskrat trapping. And we need that as grown people in this world that we live in today. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that I know all muskrats because I do not. There's guys out there that concentrate on muskrats the way there's guys out there that concentrate on coyotes or bobcats or raccoons. They know rats. They live rat trapping. That's pretty much all they do. And if I was willing to bet, they're probably happier as people for being that way. Because they get to live in the child mentality of not overcomplicating something and still getting a reward. So when I started muskrat trapping, I tried to uh, mark some stuff when I was in Alaska because that's where I got trapping. And I didn't understand or have a concept on how to trap muskrats under five, six feet of ice. So my first attempts at muskrat trapping were a total loss. A lot of energy spent, but a total loss. Just because I didn't quite understand how to do it. There was no open water where I was at in around Fairbanks, Alaska. And by the time season opens, it's a minimum of four foot of ice. I saw places where there were a ton of muskrats when the water was open, but I didn't quite understand how to get them when it was done because, you know, like I see videos where, you know, people break a couple inches of ice, they see the bubbles and say, no, no, no. We're talking four to five foot of snow and four to five foot of ice. So I didn't quite, I never caught a muskrat in Alaska. I didn't try very, very hard either because I was like, this is ridiculous. 
But when I came back home, I was so fired up about trapping. And most of y'all are gonna know that feeling. You'll do about anything to go catch something. And I used to live in Georgetown, Tennessee, which to put this in perspective, is about 25 minutes away from Cleveland, Tennessee, and where I found muskrats was 25 minutes on the other side of Cleveland, almost in Georgia. Somehow in the pools, I found a guy that had some lands and he had some muskrats. So I would get up in the morning and I would drive all the way over to catch these muskrats. Then I would go to work and I would run different traps on the way home. Now keep in mind where I live, we don't have feeder houses. We don't have big food piles where they stack up cattails. That's not the type of terrain that I was trapping in. It was basically creeks that had some rats on there. And when I say creeks, there was two that I found that I had permission on. And there was one pothole that was maybe an acre in the middle of a tree line with, with it was a swamp basically. The deepest I could go through it in hip waders, the deepest I ever got was about knee height. But there was muskrats in there. Uh, it was probably 50 feet away from a creek. And I remember I would be so excited to go check these muskrat traps. Now I would drive, you're talking two hours round trip, and I catch three or four rats and I was tickled to death. I'd also catch a few beaver and some coon and stuff like that. But what was so intriguing to me was the muskrats. Now, on the little swamp thing, I never found a, a place they were living. I never found a hole or any runs or anything like that. This was just like there's a piece of flooded timber and somehow muskrats are in it. But there was a lot of downed trees in that. And the muskrats would get up on the downed trees where they would come up out of the water and they would leave droppings. So I'm like, well, I know they're coming right here. So I went and looked at some old books and I took my ax with my, my traps and the wire and I would chop out a bed to countersink the trap the way the book showed you. And I would set those where between the water and the droppings, I would set the trap. And I think I caught, I don't know, 20 muskrats out of that that hole i think i pretty much caught them all because the next year there was none i didn't quite have the farming part of this down but that's the only way that i could catch these things there so it was just water with trees that have fallen down in it and i would find limbs and stuff the rats would come up and use the bathroom on and if i couldn't have a place where I could see them like where the water, the limb goes into the water on the angles and all that like you see in the books. I would just wire traps to limbs, put some lure above it. I caught a few, but not very many. 
And, and that was like my, my first big experience with muskrats. Pretty much nothing like I saw in the books, except for sitting on a log. And all the books had that, but it wasn't like you really hear people talk about that at demos. But I caught them. I was happy. The other two creeks were different. And the way that I trapped these was a couple of different techniques that I learned from Craig O'Gorman that learned from Bill Nelson. Where Bill Nelson got it from, I have no idea. But it was so stinking simple that I could put a bunch of traps out and if there were rats there, I mean, I, and the cool thing about doing this is I learned places that rats don't go and rats were places rats do go. And what Bill Nelson talked about that you can get in some of his books was so simple is you find a overhanging bank or a straight up and down bank. You put a trap in the water, right up tight to the bank, half inch under the water. You take a stick, you put lure on the stick, and you stick it in the bank where it's going to be six, eight inches above the trap. I mean, can you get any more childlike than that? But I'll be damned if you don't catch rats that way. I didn't, there was no cattails. There was, there was none of this that like when I go up and trap with Jeff, which I hope to here in the spring, it was, it was just open creeks, mud banks going through uh, farm fields. One was behind a, a fire station and the woods. That was it. So I would literally just find places in the banks that had steep banks overhanging grass because that's what the big the, the thing showed i found that that's not exactly necessary i put my lure on a stick stick that in the bank up higher on the bank about six eight inches and lo and behold if rats were coming by they would go investigate that lure they would step in the trap i'd have it wired off just to the bank but as they pulled the trap out I was using one and a half long springs. They would drown. I would get tickled to death. I'd have my rat. For many years, I used this technique when I came across places that have rats. Now, in Tennessee, we, we don't have a lot of muskrats anymore. We used to. I've talked to old timers that would actually take off time from the coal mines before Christmas because they could make four times the money on muskrats than they could working the coal mine. And it was very interesting on how they did it because a lot of these grown men would, would, would vary their time off and they all kind of gentlemanly would, would go, okay, I'm going to trap from this bridge to this bridge and Bob's going to trap from this bridge to that bridge. And then, you know, Jamie's going to trap from this bridge to, you know, Farmer Joe's cornfield. And then, so they didn't really get on each other's trap line. They managed their own section of the Sequatchie River. It was, it was quite gentlemanly and ingenious about how they did this. So there used to be a lot of rats 
that they could go trap. Plus they would trap them in other creeks and stuff, but on the bigger body of water, that, that, that's what they did. I've talked to sons that dads did this, but I never got to talk to the guys that actually did this because I have a lot of questions on how they would do that on the Sequatchie River because it's a very fast flowing river that can jump up and down two to three feet a night. And the Sequatchie River where they're at and where I spend a lot of time trapping was about on average 50 feet across is more just like a big creek. But you hardly ever came across dens. When you did, it was easy, but you hardly ever came across the dens because it was hard to see and you're moving fast in a canoe. So a stick would lure above a trap. The other thing that I learned uh, while I was, was going about when I was just starting to play around with muskrats was there was a book, uh, if I'm probably gonna say this wrong because it's not a name I'm used to saying, but it's like Ozzy Pazatami or something. He's out of, I believe, Pennsylvania. He wrote a coon book that was like you flip it over and the other side was muskrats. I probably still have that book somewhere. And what he was showing was taking like two 20s and you would look at the creek bottom and you would see where the current would go because it would be a little bit shinier than the rest of the creek bottom. So I mean, you don't, so you work from the downstream up, you don't work from the upstream down. So you want the water going away from you as you're seeing this and setting your traps or you're just in a big hazy mess. But lo and behold, he's just putting a 220 naked, no blocking in these currents. And it didn't matter if it was four foot deep or the traps half in or half out of the water. And I remember looking at that going, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But I remember the first time that I saw this in a creek where it stood out to me and it was about three and a half feet deep. And I put a 220 where I could see the bottom was lighter than the other part and you can kind of tell that's where the current was going anyway. And I caught like six muskrats in that one trap six days in a row. I was blown away. I mean, it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. Now, the theory behind this, and it must be true, as the rats are going upstream, there's less current on the bottom. So they hug that to stay out of the main current where it's, it's running higher up top, and they hug the bottom as they go upstream, and they just follow that like a road, and they go straight into the trap. Lo and behold, it works. Later, I found out that I could do that with larger uh, colony wire traps so I could catch multiple rats at one time. And that was the coolest thing in the world the first time I pulled up and I had two rats in one trap. And then you got four rats in a trap. Then you got three in a trap. Then you got five in a trap. You know, now you're like, you know, you're cooking with peanut oil. I mean, you're rocking. You're a professional. 
but just basically the stick with a lure and a trap in front of it setting the current when I could find it and when I did find the 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 dens I'd put a 110 or a 220 depending on the size of the hole And then eventually I got a few of the colony traps and I would put those into the runs and sure enough, you know, you catch multiple and it, 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 there's just, there's no better feeling than going up to a trap and having multiple animals in it. I learned a lot. If those are real shallow, the blue herrings around here will actually pick the, they'll pick the muskrats apart through the, the wire and try to eat them so they'll destroy the pelt that's frustrating so i learned that those need to at least be about two and a half feet deep or i'm going to be in trouble if the blue herons find them and if they do find them they check them every day and then i'm looking around and, and I, I, what I'm doing, guys, is giving you a progression of what I learned about muskrat trapping because it's not that, that, that complicated. I started plugging all the culverts that had any muskrat sign at all with body grips. And I didn't care if the culvert was a six-inch pipe or it, it ran six feet across under Bigger Creek. I would just line up colony traps on the bottom, side to side, and lo and behold, you start picking up rats sometimes where you didn't even know there was sign. Again, as I progressed through this, I was like, this is really cool. So the bottom edge set, the colony traps, and the lure on the stick. About this time, otter prices started jumping up from like $15 to $40 to $60 to $80 to $100. And since trapping was a huge part of my income at the time, I got pretty serious about otter. And I can't remember where this idea came from or where I learned it from because if I learned it from somewhere, I, I really want to give whoever that was credit. But we've had, since I've been trapping back in the early 90s, we've had three bumps in otter prices, and I started doing this on the first one. What bugged me about using straight triggers on otter was if it was shallow, I could literally see, no matter what I did with those triggers, I could literally see misses. You, you would, the water drop a little bit and you would see otter that could go through a trap and not get caught. So either I had this epiphany or I learned this from someone else, I don't remember, but I started making circle triggers 
which now you can buy through Wildlife Control Supply and probably some other people. And what I was doing is I was cutting off the regular, regular triggers. I was putting 11 gauge wire and I was using a double ferrule and I, and I would put the wire in the double ferrule, slam that side shut, put that over the original trigger so they were short and I would slam that shut. And I started picking up muskrats while I was auto trapping in places that I didn't think had muskrats. I'm not talking a lot of muskrats, but I'm talking two or three a day in places that I didn't think I had them. Because the muskrats were doing exactly what the otters were doing, and they would, because they, they see the trap, guys, I promise you they see the trap. And they manipulate their body to go through an obstacle. So the otter and the muskrat were seeing this circle, and then they were getting caught. But there again with the otter, I was seeing where otter could go through the six inch trap, which blew me away. I've got a video, um, I think I've got this in Otterly Simple. And I show what an honest to goodness, 28, 29 pound male bull otter looks like. And you can't, when he's dead, you can't shove the damn thing through the circle trigger at six inches. But when that otter is alive, he's a magician. And there again, when I would use traps, because I'm trapping in places like Mississippi and Louisiana where you don't have, I can set them on dry land. And I could see where otter would go through the circle. So I dropped the circle down to five and five and a half inches. And the muskrat catch blew up. And what I mean by blowing up, there was days I would sometimes catch 12 and 14 muskrats otter trapping in a place that I didn't know that there were otter. I mean, that I didn't know there were muskrats. So if otter prices are, are up there and muskrat prices are up there, I think it would be foolish to use straight triggers on body grip traps, I'm talking 330s and 280s, for the simple fact of the fur you're leaving behind because straight triggers, otter can and will go through them, and muskrats apparently go through them a lot. But when you regulate that down to a five inch circle, now your 330s covering a lot of water and you're picking up muskrats. And I want you to think back to what was it, 10 years ago? Muskrats were getting up to, I think as high as $13, $14 a piece. You catch 100 a day, do the calculations on that. That's, some, that, that, that's not shabby money, guys. For that kind of money, I could pick up an extra couple hundred dollars a day of muskrats. Yeah, 330 is too much for a muskrat. I'd still use them. Now, I never figured out a way on the bigger body grip traps, like the big bears, you know, the ones that are, uh, Nick, Nick is, from RBG, has is, is come out with some, I believe. 
that are that are new to the market that are they're like two feet wide in the height of a regular body grip. I don't know how you would do that for muskrats unless you put maybe two or three circles in there. But if they're $14 a piece, don't think I wouldn't put one of those traps out to cover, block up a, tree, a creek for muskrat. And on traps, as much as I like them, the big uh, 12 by 16s or 14 by 16s that you get from Minnesota, that's just too big. I don't know how in the world you'd ever block that thing down. You'd have to have, I mean, I guess you could, I guess you could run one single trigger off and have like two circles on each side. You know, it would, it would be awkward, I guess, but it would work. But the circle triggers on the bigger traps made a world of difference on catching muskrats. If a muskrat's $3, am I gonna use a Bilal's trap? Probably not. If there's 15, yeah. I wouldn't think twice about it. The next thing I got all excited about, guys, was floats. And when I say I get excited about something, I start talking to people, I start doing research, I start throwing, going through old magazines, I start ordering DVDs, and all of this was way before the internet, way before the internet. So we had to go old school to get information. And I would talk to all these different people because you got floats for flat water that doesn't move like the potholes out in South Dakota. And then where I lived, you always had current. So you had to have floats that would work in current. So I would, I would, in the summer, I'd make up two or three of these things. I'd go test them out in different current to see what it was going to do. Would it hold the traps? Well, you know, I, I'm like trying to find the ultimate float. Rats at that time, when I started playing with the floats, were about $5 a piece. And when I would float some of the bigger creeks and smaller rivers, I would actually see a lot of sign on limbs and logs. So I knew they were there. No question. So I remember I went and bought a bunch of lumber, the nails, and I spent days making these floats. I'm talking days. And I, could, I was like a kid before Christmas waiting for when I thought the rats would be prime enough to go setting. And I went out with my boat and I set floats everywhere. Or as we say in the South, everywhere. Everywhere. And I caught some rats. For the effort that I was putting into that on my type of water, it was not even close to being worth it. What I learned from that is where I'm at and where I was trapping at, floats don't really seem to start working until into January going into February, which most time our season's over about the middle of February. And then the, the float started working pretty good. 
And then there was somebody else that was trapping in the area, found all my floats, figured out they had traps on them, and he went on a, a mission to get all the traps he could get for free. And what he would do is steal the traps, I'm assuming a he, and then he would just cut the wire where I had it coming off the tree limb or something and let the things just float wherever they wanted to. So I lost a majority of those traps and floats. So I'm like, that sucks. So trying to be a creative person that still wanted to use these things because a lot of, until I got on, on the big river, the Tennessee river, finding dens was, was just not that productive. And if I'm just concentrating on muskrats and I do the lure on the stick and there's a bunch of coon, like there is in some of these areas around the agriculture places, now I'm coon trapping and every now and then pick up a muskrat. So I was trying to figure out a way to still catch the rats. So then I had this brilliant idea that actually worked pretty well. And I'd only do this towards the end of January and February, which is very tricky where I'm at because that's when we do a lot of our flooding. So I can lose a ton of equipment if I'm not paying attention to the weather or what they're doing at the dams. So what I started doing while I'm doing beaver trapping is I would find limbs that were broke off and half in the water, but not waterlogged. I'd pull them up high on the bank and I would wire them off so they would be there. And every time I'd float down beaver trapping or whatever, I could look over and go, yeah, it's still there. And I probably had about 80 of these things over the course of beaver trapping and bobcat snaring and stuff like that, that were ready to go. So, and I, and I picked the limbs and the small trees and stuff like that. So when they floated, because I would test them, when they floated, you had a, an end or a middle or something on there that the rats could easily get up on that I would know where they would try to get up on this thing at. And some of these were 15 feet long. Some were only four or five feet long. And they would hold a trap. I'd already have my nails in the log. I had my nail on the log to put my wire. And when someone's coming down fishing or whatever they're doing, all it looks like is a limb floating in the water. I had very little theft problems with this, but I had a lot of issues with our flooding with this because you're floating a log, it's got a lot of area and all of a sudden trees and stumps and everything's going down there to it. It has a tendency to grab the wire and break everything off. But that was an option to get away from theft just by using natural material that would float that didn't look out of place. But it still was not the killer response I was looking for when it came to muskrat trapping. I wish it was, but it wasn't. In about this time, I was with a buddy. We were up in a northern state. Uh, we were doing raccoon trapping. He had to do some muskrat ADC work around golf courses. 
and it struck me in the middle of this because when we found dens we would set them with with body uh, body grips or colony traps we didn't have a ton of colony traps had a bunch of 110s and 220s but a lot of these ponds just by the way when i say northern state northern state and these cattail ponds a lot of that material that gets cut and stuff floats to the bottom and it's hard to see what's down there see that's the opposite of where i'm at now because you may get some leaves and stuff on the bottom but you pretty much in current it's a mud bottom but up there the way all that stuff broke down it was like there was mulch on the bottom of these ponds and it was kind of hard to see a lot of the dens we found a bunch don't get me wrong we set them we call rats but there I learned a different technique and I started treating muskrats like a little beaver. So what I was doing is I would look at these cattails, even if we couldn't reach where the feed piles and stuff were, you could see where the muskrats actually went through the reeds. They're like miniature beaver trails. So I just started putting 220s and some 280s if the water was deeper. And even if it was, uh, if I didn't have a 280 and it was going to be below the water level, I'm setting that in there just like I would a beaver run, half in, half out of the water. Well, on the ones that were too deep, I'm like, okay, I'm catching them like beaver in these other runs. I'm just going to drop a dipole in front of the 220, get them to go under the dipole straight in the trap, just like a beaver. And that technique rocked and rolled. Because what it allowed us to do, and I'm going to be honest with everybody, and I'm going to get in this in a minute. Setting feed piles to me is a strange, haphazard, not a lot of logic or reasoning involved, but a very productive way to catch muskrats. I couldn't wrap my brain around what I was seeing my friend do at the at the the, the huts because he, he was just like he'd pick a place and put a trap. Why? Because you'll catch him. But why there? Because this is kind of flat here. Using lure? No. Okay. And he would catch rats. But it would be like one or two off one of these feed piles. Well, I could put four or five 220s on these muskrat trails going through the reeds and catch sometimes four or five rats. So to me, that seemed more productive. The problem with it on these, these cattail ponds I was running into is there's not a lot of support sticks and I didn't have a whole lot of metal supports at the time. So I was having to cut stuff and carry it with me just to make the process go faster. But treating a muskrat, just like a little beaver, because that's really what it is, except they don't eat wood, it works perfectly fine. And that was the first time I got around the traditional, classic muskrat habitat. And there was a lot more rust muskrats in that area than I've ever seen before. So every time we went to a creek, and we were mainly raccoon trapping because of prices at the time, 
and I'd put a couple of traps on, on one side of a bank, but in the middle, I would treat it kind of like we would with two coyote snares, a cat or a fox snare, then a coyote snare. Because the cat's gonna walk through the coyote snare, get caught in the cat snare. If I put the cat snare on the outside of the coyote snare, then the, the coyote a lot of times will knock it over. So I would put the muskrat with a lure on the stick just in every single creek we came to, and sure enough, was picking up rats. And that was cool beans to me. I got more pleasure, at that time those rats were probably $1.50, I got more pleasure off of those rats than we did off the higher priced raccoons. Because it wasn't something that I've done as much of and it was more of a mental challenge to me to try to catch these things. So treat them like little beaver. Then we got to the first time that I actually started catching rats in any amount of decent numbers. And when I say decent numbers, I'm not talking thousands, I'm talking several hundred. There's a huge difference. So what I'm speaking right now is somebody that's like caught 30 otter and thinks they, you know, and tries to equate that with someone that goes catches 120 otter. It's not the same. I admit that 100%. Or someone that catches a hundred raccoons, but now they're just going to all of a sudden jump up and catch a thousand raccoons. It's not the same. So the thousand rat stuff, I don't have experience with. Middle 400 in a couple of weeks, I've got experience with that. Most of my rat trapping has been like a hundred a year. Nothing spectacular. A lot of fun, but not spectacular. So I went to the river, and I've talked about this before. Rats jumped up a lot more in money, and, and I'm thinking the rats were supposed to be around $4 a piece for Tennessee rats. Buyers were scrambling for rats, which told me the price was going to go up, and they did. So I load my boat. I go down the Tennessee River with, I'm talking, a boatload of body grips. 110s, 160s, 220s, 280s. And I'm talking so many traps in the boat that I almost was breaking my leg every time I had to go up and anchor off or anything like that. So what I learned to do is a lot of the bank on the river where I was at around Nickajack, not all, but maybe about half, I could get out of the boat with chest waders, tie a rope around my belt that I used for safety up above below my nipples in case I fell in. And then I would walk with a boat, so I'm, I'm like pulling the boat the way someone would pull a sled in snow. And then when I couldn't, or I'd run out of muskrat territory, I would get in the boat and go somewhere else. And then I would get out and I would repeat that process. Not all the time, but most of the time. That was kind of my MO. So you have a big redneck pulling a boat and people were trying to figure out what I was doing. I had a lady uh, screaming at me one time that I was catching all the lobsters in the Tennessee River. My wife was with me. We were kind of horrified 
TWRA showed up, which is our version of Game Warden, just because they had to hear about a guy or meet a guy that's catching lobsters in freshwater in Tennessee because there's none here. And we all had a big laugh, and they said pretty much, she's a crazy person, don't worry about it. So I'm pulling this boat. And I'm reaching in, and I've cut a bunch of picket stakes to, to, to like just put one side in for these muskrats for dens. And there's a lot of holes on the Tennessee River. Probably 80% of them don't have muskrats in it anymore. But I, and you can't tell down there because it's hard red clay with barge traffic. So like when you're in a creek and you look down and you see, you know, it's completely different color. You see the soft dirt that's pushed out in front of it a couple of feet. You can tell that's an active run. On the Tennessee River, it's a hole. That's it. There's not, you, you don't know if, the, if there's been a muskrat in that thing for 10 years. So what do you do or what did I do? I set it. And I sat, and I sat, and I sat. Well, the, the wood pickets that I was using were too fat for me to push down in the red clay because it was hard as a rock. So the, that night, I stayed up with a whole roll of number nine wire, and I made these, you just cut a piece of number nine wire, probably about 12, 14 inches long. I would bend them over, so it's like a U, tight together and I could push that down in the mud with a lot of force mind you <clears throat> just to get enough resistance to hold the body grip so it wouldn't fall over that was a huge improvement I could set more traps I'd catch more rats still working my butt off and you can watch a lot of this that I'm talking about on my year-long blitzkrieg video but especially on the river trapping with the colony traps You'll see when I say I had a lot of colony traps, it looked like a lobster boat going out to the ocean. It was an insane amount of colony traps. Well, a few lessons that I learned. One, because our population was so low, if I stayed on the same holes more than one day, my catch would get dismal. So I started moving all those traps every single day. That's a lot of work. I had a few colony traps that when, when I had the feeling that this wasn't active, I could see some droppings around, you know, or a couple of trails going up the bank or whatever. I would save probably the six or eight colony traps I had just for those and I put them in there. And lo and behold, I'd catch two, three, four, sometimes five muskrats. And that would be it. So I'm looking at the difference between the colony traps and the body grip traps. Okay. So I'm like, I need to be a colony guy. So I go down and I order rolls. And I'm talking multiple rolls of one inch by half inch wire. And I take two days of doing nothing but probably 18 hours a day making colony traps. My hands and arms were trashed. They were cut up. I couldn't hardly move my fingers. 
But I knew, in my mind, I knew this was the ticket. <laughs> so keep in mind this whole journey I've been on with muskrats. I just knew. But see, every time I learned something new, I thought that was the ticket, which is kind of the way trapping works. But in my mind, I knew this was the ticket. So I killed myself on making body grip traps. Well, I had all of them set out by like one o'clock. So what do I go do? I go home and I make more traps. And then I set those out. Then I go home and I make more traps. And I go home and I make more traps. I was making body uh, colony traps in my sleep and hating it. But I did have some days of catching over 50 muskrats. And for someone in Tennessee, that's pretty exceptional. The other thing that I learned on the river is I would physically see muskrats in the morning and I would sit back and watch them. So I'm going out and I'm checking traps and I'll see the little head swimming around and I would just kind of kill the boat and I would sit there and watch them. And a lot of them would be out in the water no rhyme or reason. And then a lot of them would go up towards the banks where we had these overhanging banks where the water eroded out from under it. And there was like these shelves under there, sometimes dry, sometimes wet. And I would watch them and they would go perpendicular to the bank up and down with this cover above them, which made sense. Everybody's, everything's trying to eat a muskrat. So I'm like, okay. So I start bringing out a dozen 220s. And when I see these banks, I just jam it up against the bank where it's a couple inches of water covering the bottom of the trap because that's legal in Tennessee. And I would, you know, use my little wire things and kind of shove that in there so it would stay up. And lo and behold, that started catching, actually, probably per trap, three to four times as many muskrats as a colony trap would. Because I'm not hitting so many dry holes. And I'm like, now I'm rolling. So as I'm sitting there moving colony traps every day, when I'd come to these banks, I'd shove these 220s up against these the the as far as I could up against the bank on these underhanging banks and that system is what allowed me in Tennessee to catch like 450 rats and I remember when I took those and sold those and I'm sure you can talk to some people that were around back then that was an insane amount of muskrats for somebody in Tennessee to have they were all put up you, I was as proud as any parent would be when their kid gets valedictorian. I mean, that was a huge accomplishment for me. And I made decent money off of that. Because the majority of the time I had to drive to the river, which was about 25 minutes. I might have used a half a tank of gas per day and back then gas was a dollar ten a gallon a little bit of oil 
And most of the time, I'm actually pulling the boat. So my cost was very low. But the colony traps in the river and setting up those overhanging banks with the trap running, say it'd be perpendicular to the bank because as the rats go, you know, back and forth underneath them things, I want them running into the trap. I also learned that I could use footholds if it was really shallow and I would catch rats. I put lure there just because I had a bunch because um, I bought a bunch. And I started picking up raccoons, which was okay. Water would drop a lot, and then it got weird because I'd start catching rabbits and squirrels. But that's kind of like my evolution of muskrat trapping. I've played around with different things. I've talked to different people. When I go up and trap with Jeff, he sets a lot of... And he's got lots of videos on this. He sets a lot of his, his rat houses in the way that still makes no freaking sense to me. And I watch him pull rat after rat after rat. So if that's the way that you do it, rock on with it. It just bugs me because... I can't logically, in my mind, wrap my head around the reason for doing what he does besides it catches rats. It's like it's uh, either it doesn't matter where you put the trap, which bugs me, or he's got, like, uh, as most people that do this, just a sixth sense and they just know where the rat's going to be, which bugs me because I don't. I've talked to a lot of uh, Louisiana guys that trap in the big swamps when you get down below Baton Rouge. And they trap rats in a very different manner than I've, I've, I've never seen anybody do this on a mad, uh, mass scale. They go in a boat right up next to the bank and you have the water that goes to this short grass stuff and, and especially if you get down around um, New Orleans, a little bit south and north and east and west of there, it's just a different type of terrain in Louisiana than I trapped in. And what they were doing is you would see these little trails come up, because I've seen them, I've been down there, and they're like three inches wide, and the muskrats would go from the water up there and eat some of the plants and come back. And this was back in the day when they had a ton of muskrats. People used to make a living in Louisiana just muskrat trapping. And what they did was use stop-loss traps, and they would just set them down in those runs. Sometimes on the bank, sometimes in the edge of the water, so they'd have three or four traps, and then they would come back and collect their muskrats. If you've got that type of environment... I would seriously look into getting a bunch of stop-loss traps. Because the numbers them boys were catching, with the older guys that I've talked to, is mind-blowing. And think of how fast you can set those traps up. It's a stake, it's the original chain, and a stop-loss trap. They're not covering nothing.
They're not blending, they're not guiding, they're not doing nothing. Let's see, some other stuff. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of guys that go out to South Dakota and they have really good success on these little floats. They can put two traps on each side. They put, you know, like an apple or parsnip or something in the middle. And they have these little bitty potholes. They're not dealing with current. They're not hooked to dams. They don't have the water elevation. And the muskrats are pretty much just there. And they kill the shit out of them. So again, you need that type of environment, I think, for that to work that way. I can tell you this is a lot of work, but when I was doing a lot of otter trapping, I would use fences to guide the otter on bigger creeks to get them up towards the bank. With the circle triggers, that's when I really started catching muskrats. So you can guide muskrats just like anything else. Don't think you can't. The biggest point, guys, is there's nothing about this that's just not kid trapping. It's fun. It like resets an adult to just be in the experience of trapping. And I know like up north around some of these big places like Jeff does on opening day, it's like drag racing and arguing and who can get the flags out and the traps out first and all of that. That usually goes away after a couple of days. Now, if you're in that situation, you may need a different mindset than a kid to go out and compete against other grown men that are looking at it like it's a life and death situation. But after that initial, according to Jeff, that calms down a lot. People get excited. They get to feel they're, they're, you know, it's actually a lot of work and they decide that they can do something else. The biggest point is just have fun. We don't have to always be Superman when we're out trapping. And if it gets to the point like it has for me in the past, where it's starting to not be fun, you need to back off a little bit and realize the gift that you have to be out in a situation where you can actually be with nature, in nature, and part of nature. Where you see things most people don't see and experience things most people never get to experience. Just being on the water. That's like one of the coolest gifts a country like ours has for, for, for guys and girls. We still can go out and do it. A lot of places in the world, it's illegal. And it's not that it's not being done. The government is the one that does it. That would suck. If that's ever going to happen here, I don't know. But until it does, realize the gift that you have. Every time you get to go out in crisp weather and be part of nature, 
and enjoy trapping. Yeah, some years you can make a ton of money. But it's still a gift you need to appreciate. Guys, and I will talk to you all next week.